0: Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.
1: I'm Archbishop John Wester, Archbishop of Santa Fe, New Mexico. The way I found out was I got a telephone call from it was the archbishop then. He said, are you free? I said, yes. And he said, someone wants to talk to you. And so the nuncio came on, and uh, he's told me that uh, the Holy Father is going to make me the auxiliary bishop of San Francisco. I was, um, needless to say, shocked and nonplussed and surprised and scared. And and then I had to go and say the 8 o'clock Mass, and so I, I think my knees were knocking.
2: The process of making a bishop is highly secretive. Most bishops had no idea that they were even candidates before they got the fateful call. The whole process is protected by the Vatican's highest confidentiality classification. It's called the Pontifical Secret. In this deep dive episode of Inside the Vatican, we're taking you inside the process by which bishops, well, become bishops. And we'll hear what kinds of questions the Vatican asks its top candidates. Something which, by the way, is brand new information. And finally, we'll look at what can happen when this system doesn't work as planned. I'm Colleen Deli. This is Inside the Vatican.
1: I think people said, you don't look very good, Father. I said, well, (laughs) I don't feel very good right now. It was kind of a a shockeroo. So yes, it it was quite unexpected.
2: Bishops like John Wester never hear that they're candidates. They just get a call one day, and they're chosen. But last fall, the Vatican took the unprecedented step of revealing exactly how one notorious bishop got his job—former Cardinal Theodore McCarrick. He was removed from the College of Cardinals and from the priesthood when it was discovered that he had abused minors.
3: Cardinal Theodore McCarrick, the former Archbishop of Washington and a prominent figure in the Catholic Church, has submitted his resignation to Pope Francis amid a sexual abuse scandal.
2: McCarrick had been one of the most powerful Americans in the Catholic Church. He traveled the world with various Vatican offices and charities, raised huge sums of money, and made high-profile friends of all political stripes. So how did he manage to ascend through the ranks without being caught? The Vatican attempted to answer that question in a 460-page report on his career that most people call the McCarrick Report. It revealed every detail of his rise—who supported him, who spoke out, and who ignored the warning signs. My co-host, America Magazine's Vatican correspondent Gerard O'Connell, said that after this report, there's no going back.
4: Well, the McCarrick report put the silver bullet through the pontifical secrets because for the first time, we have documented, published by the Vatican, so not by some enterprising journalist, an official account of the the various moves to the appointment of Archbishop McCarrick and then Cardinal McCarrick. So, how he moved from one diocese to another and eventually became Cardinal, and who was supporting him, who was against his appointment, and who kept back information that they should have revealed. The point is, it has shown how the system failed, And it has explained largely how the system failed from low down to high up. To understand
2: how that system failed from low down to high up, we first have to understand how the system works. To help explain that, I called Father Tom Reese.
5: Well, I'm Tom Reese and currently a uh, columnist for Religion News Service. Before that, I've had other jobs, including being editor-in-chief of America Magazine, uh, which is the best job in the whole world.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You have to say that to us. (laughs) Yes,
5: absolutely. Uh, In any case, uh, I got interested in uh, bishops and the appointment of bishops way back in 1984.
2: That year, Father Reese got his hands on a copy of the secret questionnaire that the Vatican sends out to gather information on potential bishops. He published the whole thing in America magazine.
5: It was the first time it was ever published.
2: And went on to write two books digging into the secret process behind how bishops get their jobs. I asked him to walk me through it.
5: Well, the selection of bishops starts, of course, with either a bishop dying or retiring. As you know, uh, every bishop has to submit his resignation to the pope when he reaches 75 years. When Uh, the Vatican knows that someone's going to be resigning or when suddenly a bishop dies, they have to begin this process of appointing a new bishop. And it starts with the Nuncio in the United States. The Nuncio, of course, is the pope's representative to the American church and to the American government. The the Nuncio actually keeps a uh, file of what you might call uh, possible candidates for becoming bishops. These are people that have been recommended uh, to him by the bishops across the United States. And one of the things they do is draw up a list of the priests in their province, and they vote on those and send the names to the nuncio.
2: So the nuncio already has some names on hand from bishops in the area or the province.
5: So uh, what he does is he contacts, uh, usually he contacts the cardinals and the archbishop of the province, where that diocese resides, and asks them, well, what do you think? Who should we appoint?
2: So what kind of things are they looking for out of these people?
5: Well, that's that's the $64,000 question. Every pope does exactly what you or I would do if we were pope. He looks for people who agree with him on the major issues facing the Catholic Church. So the kind of priests that they are looking for to make a bishops varies from pontificate to pontificate. You know, if you go back into the early history of the United States, uh, most of the bishops were managers and builders. Paul VI uh, wanted bishops who were much more pastoral Uh, On the other hand, when John Paul II was elected, he was very concerned about what he saw as chaos in the Catholic Church, and he wanted to stress unity.
0: I learned as a bishop to understand firsthand the ministry of priests, the problems affecting their lives, the splendid efforts they are making, the sacrifices, that are an integral part of their service to God's people.
5: So he looked for people that basically agreed with him on uh, doctrinal issues. So he didn't want anybody that questioned humani Vitae, questioned the church's teaching on birth control, let alone women priests or any of those
2: things. The questionnaire that Father Rees published in the 80s actually has questions about where a candidate for bishop comes down on those specific issues birth control, and women's ordination.
5: So he sends his instructions to the nuncio, you know, find some people like this.
2: So the nuncio does that. He checks his files, talks to bishops in the area, sends out that secret questionnaire to some people who know the candidates, and then...
5: He writes a report on each of the candidates, and he also writes a report on the diocese. I remember Archbishop Loggi telling me that his job was like uh, an architect in a cathedral.
2: Loggi was the nuncio to the US in the 80s.
5: You have these niches in the cathedral for statues, and you got to find the saint that fits the niche. Uh, so you got, you got to find the bishop who fits the diocese. So it's not just, you know, uh, the qualities of the bishop, but what qualities fit the particular diocese he's going to. Uh, You know, for example, you know, some dioceses, for various reasons, uh, are in turmoil. So uh, they would look for someone who could respond to that crisis and deal with it. Or you might have a diocese that's bankrupt, and you need somebody to go in who's a good financial manager.
2: The Nuncio recommends three candidates, and sends his report to the Vatican's Congregation for Bishops, which is a group of about 30 bishops who meet regularly to vote on these candidates. Then they send the names on to the pope.
5: The politics inside the congregation uh, is, of course, fascinating. Often there's a great deference played to people from the country of the candidate. So, for example, if you've got an American cardinal in the congregation and the candidate is uh, for a diocese in the United States, if that cardinal wants a particular candidate, uh, the other bishops are very likely to defer to him because, of course, they want him to defer to them <laughs> when, when their country comes up.
2: This is really interesting because Pope Francis just added a new American cardinal to the Congregation for Bishops, Cardinal Joseph Tobin of Newark. He joins Chicago Cardinal Blaise Supich as the only two Americans in the group. Both Supich and Tobin are very supportive of Pope Francis, which has sometimes led to clashes with other U.S. bishops. Like when Cardinal Supich publicly criticized USCCB President Jose Gomez's statement on President Biden's inauguration.
5: On Inauguration Day, the extraordinary rift over Biden among Catholics burst into view. Pope Francis, who's met Biden several times, sending cordial good wishes. But the church's American leaders taking a different tone. Archbishop Jose Gomez, who heads the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, while praising Biden's piety and personal story, warned that the new president would advance moral evils and threaten human life and dignity. Most seriously in the areas of abortion, contraception,
2: marriage and gender. So with Tobin and Supich in the Congregation for Bishops, we can expect that the new bishops appointed in the U.S. will be a lot more like Pope Francis. Jerry said that given the number of retirement vacancies on the horizon, it's possible that in only three years, Francis will have tipped the balance of the U.S. Bishops' Conference, the same way that John Paul II did when he was pope. And then after all the recommendations from the bishops and the nuncios and the Congregation for Bishops, it's the pope who has the final say.
5: That's always the wild card. Is the Pope, uh, after he gets the three recommendations from the Congregation for Bishops, you know, on smaller dioceses, uh, less important dioceses, he usually kind of rubber stamps it. He does Sometimes he doesn't even know where these dioceses are. But if it's an important diocese, one where you know the man might become a cardinal you know, he wants to know about these people. And he might uh, call one of his friends in the country where this uh, candidate is coming from and ask him, hey, what do you think about this guy? Uh, Is is he going to be somebody we can work with? Or is he, you know, going to be a troublemaker? So uh, it's a very human process. There's the formal process, but then Uh, There's always the informal process, which is all about who you know and who trusts you.
2: After the break, what happens when that process goes wrong? Support for this episode comes from The Great Courses Plus. One of the courses that The Great Courses Plus has to offer that I think is really cool is The History of Christianity 2, from the Reformation to the Modern Megachurch. It's taught by Dr. Molly Werther from University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And she goes through so many different parts of the history of Christianity that I didn't know about, you know, I'm Catholic, I don't always pay attention to <laughs> to you know, Protestant history too much or or its sizable effect then on the Catholic Church in return, right? So, uh, you know, my favorite lectures in the series were definitely there was one on Vatican II that was super interesting. Uh, it goes into not just the internal debates that happen inside the council and like the key questions of of the time that they were faced with, but Then it zooms out and it looks at Vatican II's impact on the rest of the world, and it goes pretty into depth on how Vatican II ended up affecting the Filipino revolution. So I would really recommend, I think our listeners would be really interested in taking this course, uh, but there are also literally hundreds to choose from on The Great Courses Plus. So you can sign up for The Great Courses Plus today to start your free 14-day trial, and for a limited time, Inside the Vatican listeners can save 20% on the annual membership. This is only available through our special URL, which is thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Vatican. So go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash vatican to start a 14-day trial and save 20% off an annual membership. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash vatican.
5: This long-awaited report admits that Pope John Paul II, who made McCarrick a, a cardinal and appointed him to Washington, D.C., knew about allegations of sexual misconduct, but chose to ignore them and to instead take McCarrick
3: for his word. The 400-plus page report details the offenses that forced former Cardinal Theodore McCarrick to give up his red hat and Roman collar. He was known um, within the Vatican, dating back to the 90s, as someone that that young priests should stay away from.
2: The Vatican's report on the disgraced former Cardinal Theodore McCarrick focused on two central questions. First, who knew about McCarrick abusing minors and seminarians? And second, if people knew, how did McCarrick manage to rise through the ranks, becoming bishop of Washington, D.C., and then a cardinal? As we've seen, the process of making a bishop usually happens from the bottom to the top. A diocese needs a bishop— The nuncio looks for candidates and makes a recommendation. The Congregation for Bishops approves, and the Pope signs off with a final decision. In the case of McCarrick, though, that process happened upside down. Pope John Paul II initiated the search.
4: When he met Cardinal O'Connor, he obviously hinted that he was thinking about promoting McCarrick to another diocese, to another, possibly even make him a cardinal one day. The Pope would do this to watch the reaction. Well, O'Connor's reaction kind of came delayed, and it came in written form, where he outlined his real reservations.
2: Right. He wrote a letter to the nuncio and to the Congregation for Bishops, uh, outlining kind of what he'd heard.
4: And this had come to the attention of the Pope. So the Pope asked the nuncio, please investigate this. The nuncio then uh, approached four bishops, three of them gave back information that was incomplete. He, he, he didn't really dig deep enough. If these were serious charges, the, 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 he, it was his task to dig deeper. But the nuncio may well have been also favorable to the appointment of McCarrick.
2: Right. It says at that point that the three bishops gave back the incomplete information, the fourth told what he knew, And after that, even though the nuncio had more names on his list to talk to, he decided to kind of abandon investigating further.
4: McCarrick ends up getting appointed because, first of all, three bishops didn't give the full information. Secondly, somebody in Rome or in the nunciature in Washington tipped him off that there was accusations against him, and he wrote a letter to Archbishop Jeevich, the Pope's secretary, knowing that it would go directly to the Pope, in which he swore that he had never abused in any way neither man, woman, nor child.
2: And in the report it says that he might have been more willing to believe him for a few reasons, including... You know, that that he had been a veteran of kind of the, the communist era in Poland, when priests were often discredited just as a political weapon, and then also that he had this friendship with McCarrick. And both of those things, they said, came together and made him more likely to believe him when he said he was innocent. John Paul II didn't believe McCarrick was an abuser or a pathological liar. But if appointing bishops is based purely on an honor system cloaked in secrecy, Is it really an effective system for appointing our leaders?
4: Look, I look back over the pontificates since Paul VI to the present day. Every pope has made some appointments that really were proven to be mistaken appointments. I mean, we're all fallible human creatures. The selection process is a fallible process. The popes, in different ways, try to ensure that the process is as good as can be. But we see in all walks of life, I mean, people choose a partner in life, and they find they're mistaken. It's part of the human reality that we do not have a perfect system, an infallible system, and we will not have one. So what you try to do is produce a system that eliminates to the greatest possible degree errors or mistakes, And it depends on the honesty and the clear-mindedness of those who are giving information and those who are taking decisions.
2: The problems in this system aren't new. Pope Francis has known about them since before he was Pope.
4: Well, basically, when Francis became Pope, he immediately set about changing the criteria for the appointment of bishops. He spoke to the nuncios, I think 2013, 2014, and he explained to them very clearly. He says, I don't want culture warriors. So after the Pope had made clear to the nuncios, made clear to the congregation of bishops that he wanted different criteria, the original page with questions that was sent to the nuncios and then sent to bishops, which Cardinal Laghi, then the nuncio in the United States, published in American magazine, much to the consternation of Rome. Rome wasn't very happy when he published and made the document public. There is now, instead of that one page, there is a document of four pages.
2: And Jerry got his hands on a copy of that new four-page confidential questionnaire. What you'll hear from him here is not an official translation. He was reading the document in Italian and summarizing it in English on the spot.
4: First of all, it starts with, it says, personal notes. The person who is asked to give information about a candidate by the nuncio has to say, how well do you know this person?
2: That is similar to how the, the one from the 80s started.
4: Yes. They're looking for personal knowledge, not from things you hear from other people. Secondly, they want a description of the candidate from this person's point of view. And then they go into some main areas. They, first of all, look at the human qualities. That's one whole area. Then the intellectual qualities. Then the third area is the pastoral qualities. And the fourth area is an overall evaluation of the candidate. And then there's a fifth note. Is there anybody else that you know who's got good information on this candidate.
2: An important part of what's been added to the questionnaire is, of course, about abuse.
4: Has the candidate really, in his own life, uh, had any slip-ups or things that could lead to scandal? Has he been involved in any way with relations with women, with men, or with minors? It's very specific. And if you think of what came out in the McCarrick report, it is... This part of the questions that are being asked of those to give information it doesn't leave many loopholes.
2: But it is still an honor system. I asked Jerry how the Vatican is trying to prevent respondents from leaving out important information.
4: It says at the end you have to give your judgment before God in your conscience on the, on what, the information you're giving. And I think what the McCarrick report has done, it has put people on their guard. Because if they do not come forward with the information, say what they honestly think, what they honestly know, give the information, they may well uh, come into the public eye later on. So it's a warning signal to people not to keep back information because, first of all, they come out badly themselves. But if more importantly, they damage the church and they damage the people for whom the bishop is being appointed. It's a very serious thing.
2: Pope Francis's changes to the questionnaire aren't just aimed at preventing malpractice. They're also about choosing the best candidate for the job. So what are the qualities that Pope Francis is looking for in a bishop? The questionnaire offers some clues.
4: Is he psychologically balanced? Is he an educated, sincere kind of person? Can he make calm judgments about people? Has he got virtues of prudence? Justice, temperance. Is this person able to establish serene relations with people? Does he know the situations in which people live? How has this possible candidate to be a bishop dealt with abuse questions? Has he done it adequately? What's the person's thinking on the ordination of women, on the priestly ministry, in other words, on celibacy, on on marriage, on social justice, on sexual ethics? What is his attitude towards ideologies that are contrary to the... Values of the gospel and the Catholic Church. Has this Church? person really made a commitment to uh, follow up on the teachings of Vatican II and, and the popes? What the popes have taught about? Is this it person has he got an ecumenical mind? Is he reaching out to other Christians? Is he reaching out to the Is other the religions? Candidate uh, really convinced and loyal to the doctrine and magisterium of the Church, and the magisterium includes Maurice Laetitia, It includes the Laudato Si. These four pages were described to me by a person in the congregation as a work in progress. So it's not, you know, a document on stone that's gone out. It's it's being adjusted as other aspects of it. From the feedback of the candidates, they realize they haven't touched on this question. Maybe they need to fine-tune this. Maybe they need to add something.
2: But these questions aren't the only thing that Pope Francis is trying to change. He's also trying to change who gets a voice by encouraging the nuncios to reach out to more lay people.
4: Now, the nuncios expected to do this, but not all of them uh, involve lay people. Th- this is a big problem, and this is what they're trying to correct.
3: The laity, for certain, is an underutilized resource, a treasure of the Church, My name is Carrie Robinson, and I am the partner at Leadership Roundtable in charge of global and national initiatives. And when we look at the church in the United States in particular, laity have risen to levels of affluence and influence and count among the highest levels of leadership, the highest echelons of leadership in every sector and industry. The church deserves to benefit from their expertise.
2: Leadership Roundtable was founded in the wake of the abuse crisis in 2002 and has been collaborating with bishops on organization reforms ever since. So they've got a lot of insight into the
3: lives of bishops and the challenges they face. I think it's probably quite a lonely role. If there's anything that we have learned in these last 20 years, it is the importance of co-responsibility and genuine friendship of modeling collaboration. And I think it matters to see women and men ordained religious and lay as colleagues, as friends, demonstrating deep, profound respect for one another. All of us, regardless of ordination status, have an obligation to be a beneficial presence to one another in the church and in the world.
2: And when it comes to promoting an individual to leadership, whether that's a C-suite executive or a bishop. Carrie says there's one factor that is essential to the group
3: making the selection. Diversity in this matters so much. I, I would stake my life on this claim, in fact, that we all are myopic on our own or in our narrowly defined groups. So we need to solve for our own myopia. We only know what we know. We need the diversity of perspectives and experiences, I would argue, to be healthy and whole and wiser and more prudent. So if I were in charge of appointing bishops, if if I were the pope, I would want desperately for as much informed advice and opinion as possible. Leadership Roundtable has not yet been invited to consult on the selection of bishops. But Carrie has been able to pose an important question. My women colleagues in Catholic philanthropy and I had the rare privilege over 11 years spanning three popes to visit Rome and have personal private meetings with each of the presidents or prefects of the pontifical councils or congregations. And our sole purpose was to talk about the role of women in the church and opportunities to elevate women to positions of meaningful leadership and at the tables of decision-making. We were only advocating things that are possible, that don't contradict magisterial teaching, but that seem to not have happened for failure of imagination or will. And one of the most memorable conversations was visiting the Congregation for Bishops and meeting Cardinal Ouellette. Cardinal Ouellette is the prefect
2: for the Congregation of Bishops. He works with the nuncios around the world and is the one who presents the
3: pope with the final list of candidates for a bishop of a particular diocese. And he talked to us about the process at the time. And it was very thorough and involved, and we appreciated how much time he took to lay it out for us. And because the purpose of our visit was really focused on women, we posed a question to him along the lines of the following When considering candidates to be appointed bishops, do you take into consideration a candidate's ability to work? well, with great respect and effectiveness with women. And there was just this, this moment of, of pause there, kind of like surprise, I guess. Like maybe this question specifically about women and candidates being able to work well, demonstrably work well with women, um, had never been asked. Carrie
2: Robinson isn't the only one who's asked that question. One group of laypeople, called Voice of the Faithful, has called for an additional step to be added to the bishop selection process, which would require the bishop or nuncio making recommendations to consult with a group of local laypeople. Other experts have cautioned that laypeople have many of the same shortcomings as bishops, like favoritism or biases or blind spots. For his part, Pope Francis has instructed nuncios to reach out to a variety of people, including laypeople, while gathering feedback on candidates, but it's difficult to tell how widely that instruction has been followed. So where does that leave us? We've learned how the process of appointing a bishop is supposed to work, as well as how badly things can end up when bishops withhold information. And thanks to the reflection sparked by the McCarrick Report, we see the shortfalls of this process that it relies on a delicate honor system that's shrouded in secrecy and doesn't guarantee that a diversity of voices will be heard. We've also learned about the efforts to change that process, like Pope Francis rewriting the questionnaire and increasing calls for more lay involvement. There's still one more document that gives us a clue what Pope Francis is looking for in a bishop, although this one has been public for a while. It's the Pope's speech to the Congregation for Bishops that he gave in the first year of his papacy. In it, he talks about a lot of the qualities that we heard about in the questionnaire. But then he says, All of these indispensable gifts must nonetheless be secondary to the central witness to the risen one. That is, none of the bishop's qualifications mean anything if the bishop isn't primarily about Jesus loving him, teaching about him, trying to follow his example. Archbishop Wester said the same thing.
1: Well, I think to be grounded in Christ, of course, which we all are, but to really emphasize and to keep coming back to that very important theme that, you know, that uh, we are grounded in Christ. All of the movements and fads and, and, and different issues that come up. And I think this is how we stay steady and and, and secure and, and a constantly changing sea, and not to be carried away by this wave or that, but to, to just to keep announcing the good news and recognizing no matter what the issue may be, the gospel is relevant, the gospel is alive, and Christ is with us as he promised to be until the end of the age.
2: And one last thing before we go, we talked a lot in this episode about how important transparency is for keeping leaders accountable. I'm proud to say that at America Magazine, we strive to ensure that kind of transparency every day. America was the first to publish the Bishop's Questionnaire back in 1984, and today we were the first to summarize the new one. Our work at America looks a little different now than it did back in the 80s. You're hearing this in a podcast, after all. But our goal is the same it has been for the last 112 years, to ensure top-quality reporting and to bring you a smart Catholic take from the intersection of the Church and the world. This week marks our 112th anniversary, and it's you, our audience, that powers our mission. So please give at americamagazine.org slash donate. Thank you. Inside the Vatican is a production of America Media. This week's episode was produced by Maggie Van Dorn. Production assistance from Robert Balassare at the Jesuit Curia in Rome. Sound design and mixing by Rebecca Seidel. You can find in-depth and up-to-date Vatican coverage at americamagazine.org and follow us on Twitter at I-N-S-D-E Vatican Pod. That's inside without the second I, Vatican Pod. You can also email us your comments and questions at inside the Vatican at If you enjoy these deep dive episodes, please subscribe to Inside the Vatican and tell a friend about the show. For America Media with Gerard O'Connell, I'm your host and producer, Colleen Dully. We'll see you next time.
0: Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture?